Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang saranangachami Dhammang saranangachami Sangang saranangachami Dutiampi buddhang saranangachami Dutiampi dhammang saranangachami Dutiampi sangang saranangachami Dutiampi buddhang saranangachami Dhatiampi dhammang saranangachami Dhatiampi sangang saranangachami Anadipata veramani sikapadang samadhyami Adinadana veramani sikapadang samadhyami Abrahmacharya Veramani Sikha Padang Samadhyami Musawada Veramani Sikha Padang Samadhyami Sura Meraya Majapama Dhatana Veramani Sikha Padang Samadhyami Vikala Bhojana Veramani Sikha Padang Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Veramani Sekapadang Samadhyami Ucha Sayana Mahasayana Veramani Sekapadang Samadhyami Idang me silang magapalanyanasa pachayo hotu. So coming on a long retreat like this is a big undertaking, whether you're new to practice or have been to many retreats before, every time it's a journey into the unknown. Even if you come with no expectations, it'll be different from what you expect. It's just a kind of rule of thumb of retreat. We really are journeying journeying into a mystery and the unfolding of the practice, what will be our retreat experience is completely unpredictable. And so we have to be open to whatever presents itself as the, the journey that we're on. And as we f- become uh, more settled into being here, being on retreat, the retreat center becomes our home on a long retreat. We leave behind our other home, our other concerns, our other possessions, our, our other experiences, And this becomes our world. 
And that is one of the beauties, and for some times it can be the challenges of a long retreat, is that sense of entering into um, this new experience where all that was familiar to us can be left behind. The best places of practice, those magical places for practice, have what we often talk about as a timeless quality to them. Uh, The monasteries of Asia, the beautiful secluded places in Europe that people have practiced for thousands of years. And IMS, I think, is also one of those timeless realms. As much as it's run by bells ringing at uh, regular intervals, Day after day just blends in one to the other. Can you tell whether it's Thursday or Saturday or Friday or, you know, if you didn't keep track through the interviews, you wouldn't know what day it was really. That's actually a wonderful support for our practice, not to be so fixated on time and days and calendar. And I'm sure none of you are counting the days that you've been here or estimating how many days to go. Um, If you are, no, it's a painful process. I recommend dropping it because on a long retreat, they can seem to add up. And it's always the way that we do those calculations when we're having a difficult time. We never uh, worry about it when things are going well. But how to make the best of being here on a retreat like this with that sense of fully immersing yourself in your process here and letting go of these outer concerns, how to reorient to being on retreat and really let go of um, what used to be so primary for us, the, the concerns of our life. And that's why I thought I would talk tonight and probably for a few nights about um, on the theme of the Dasa Dharma Sutta, and I think you all picked up the handout. You don't need to refer to it. It's a very short list, but I find these reflections very helpful ones to Um, come back to again and again on a long retreat because it really is about this reorienting to being on retreat, to to being in this timeless realm and not so caught up in the busyness of our lives. The sutra is from the Anguttara Nikaya, one of the collections of suttas that uh, were, were written down about 500 years after the death of the Buddha. Uh, numerical discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya. And so each of the sections is um, organized by number. So there's a section where there's ones of everything and twos of everything. And this is from, obviously, the section where there's ten of things. And so this is, uh, the name of this sutta is Ten Subjects for Frequent Recollection or Ten Reflections on the Ten Dharmas. And monks, nuns, are actually encouraged to reflect on these daily because they are a great support to the meditative life, the renunciate life. And as we practice here at IMS, we become bhikkhus. There's one definition of bhikkhu, even though it usually means monk, that is any serious committed practitioner. And if there's any definition of that, it's you in coming here and being in a long retreat like this. So... For our purposes, we're all bhikkhus here, and these are things that are helpful for us to reflect on. Because we do enter a monastery when we come on a retreat like this. We actually create a monastery. We create a sangha as we practice together. And in some ways, 
This is a stricter monastery than many you'll find in Asia because of the depth of practice that we encourage here, the continuity of practice, the vows of silence that we take. Many people live in monasteries more as a, as a community, and there's a lot of interaction and busyness, and we're really um, removed here from a lot of that. So we are in a monastery. Don't take this list as judgments or commandments uh, or anything to beat yourself up with. Use them as supports for practice. I consider them a little like the precepts, and you'll know when we talk about the precepts, we call them training guidelines. They're not commandments, but they're really uh, reflections to create um, direction for us. And if we don't aren't uh, completely aligned, we, we see that and we can bring ourselves more in alignment. So it really is a support for practice, not shoulds or it must be this way. And some of them may not be really relevant for you, and that's fine. You, you may find one or two that speak to you that you can work with in an ongoing way, but if it's not helpful, again, not to, to worry about it, not to feel you need to hold these in mind. But the general sense of them, I think, is helpful. And that is this reorienting to what are the values and motivations that will support my being here and practicing in a full, wholehearted way, fully committed way. That's the intention behind these reflections and behind the talks that I will give on the sutta. So the first of these is I am no longer living according to worldly aims and values. And this injunction is a common theme in the suttas because most of the suttas were directed towards renunciates, homeless ones, people who had left the householder life and entered the homeless life become monks or nuns, renunciates. And so this theme of turning away from those values of the householder and really fully taking up the values of the renunciate is spoken of again and again in the suttas. Um, For example, at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya that is the guidelines for our practice. I think Guy mentioned it briefly the other night in his talk, Um, The Satipatthana Sutta is on the four foundations of mindfulness. And in the beginning, in the introduction to that sutta, there's a refrain that says that the practitioner, in going on to practice in this way, having put away grief and covetousness for the world, then goes on to practice the four foundations of mindfulness. And every time I read that line, I would think, if I could put away grief and covetousness for the world, I wouldn't need to do the rest. That's kind of our problem, isn't it, that we have all this grief and covetousness for the world. We're both aversive and wanting and caught up in that. But this is what we're asked to do and is necessary in a way to really dive into the practice. It's hard for us, though. As William Wordsworth says, The world is too much with us, late and soon. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Really speaking to all of that energy that we put into our worldly life, that that cycle of acquisition, of um, 
whether it's of material things, of experiences, of roles, the way we create so much doing in our lives, and it just obsesses us at times. And here we're really moving in an opposite direction. And from this perspective, we can turn and look at those worldly aims and values and really question them. Are they really what we want to make the guidelines of our life? Are they really that important? And, and, and more seriously, how much satisfaction do they really give us to really look at these kinds of questions? In this reflection, though, we're not asked just to give up things, though there are many things we give up coming on retreat. Starbucks coffee, you know, how many of you have had that thought? Where is the nearest? All we have in town is a Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know how good that compares, but you know, your own bed or pillow, all of those comforts, going to movies, entertainment, you know, the, the daily newspaper, email. It's endless what we give up on retreat. You give up your cell phone and that sense of being always in contact. For most of that, us, that's a real relief, but for some, there's a real attachment to that being always on. At Spirit Rock, where I teach a lot, um, luckily we're in a little secluded valley and we don't have cell phone con- uh, re- uh, reception yet. But as they keep putting more towers in, now the cell phones are starting to ring. They don't actually answer, but we, you know, people forget to turn them off because they never used to work. But now they're ringing there. and We're dreading the day where it becomes possible for them to actually work. And they, they probably do work here. And I'm sure there's some of you who have gone down to the parking lot and made some calls. It, you know, times have changed. It used to be the one pay phone down the bottom was your sole contact with the world. And now you can't get away. But they, there is, it's really helpful to renounce that sense of connection. I saw this cartoon a little while ago, and in cartoons depicting meditation, it always looks like they're in a zendo, a zen monastery, and they're always robed because it's just the, the cultural uh, cipher for a meditator. But there's a guy there, and he's robed, and he's, you can see he's talking on the cell phone, and he's saying, nothing's happening yet. <laughs> so... If, if you had your cell phone, maybe you'd be tempted to get it out with that, plea, that cry of, oh, nothing's happening yet. Luckily, we can't do that. Please renounce your cell phone. But in doing this, it's not just, as I said, things that we give up, but values, orientations are shifting. But we need to know what is it that we've been fixated on, that we're giving up, before we can turn in the other direction, and to see if perhaps there are ways you are holding on to what might be considered worldly aims and values and bringing those into your practice here in a way that's not so helpful. So I'll just speak in general terms or out of my own reflections, but these considerations will be different for everyone. It might be interesting for you to see if there's ways that these are affecting you. Things like being comfortable. As I said, you know, your own bed and pillow, and it's just every night you go into that little foamy in the room and go, oh, you know, if only I could sleep better if I had my own bed and my own pillow. Your books and possessions, you know, all the things we collect to make ourselves comfortable in our homes. 
being successful. So many people have their sense of identity around their role in the world and being busy. You know, it's actually a sort of cachet now when someone says, how are you, know, how are you doing? You're all busy. I'm very busy. Uh, as though that means how important you are in the world, how many people need you and how involved you are in things, how essential you are to the running of things. Very busy. You can't say that here, can you? You have to let go of that, that sense of being important in the world. I mean, we need you to do your yogi job. But apart from that, it's pretty minimal. You know, show up for your interviews. So there's a lot of letting go about that. You know, all of the things that obsess many people in getting on in life, and it's always about the next thing. You know, bigger house, a better car, newer car, a better job, a better relationship. These are so much uh, the, the, the cultural norms for many people. Being famous has become such a big deal in this culture. Hasn't it gotten ridiculous? I mean, we used to joke about that someone came up with that 15 minutes of fame. They didn't realize the direction they were sending society in, where people will do anything, even really embarrass themselves, hurt themselves to be famous. This is a drive. It's become a value. It's like any publicity is better than no publicity and taken to the extreme. The Buddha, in talking about these drives, these worldly conditions, spoke often about what he called the eight worldly conditions that he said were always alternating for us of um, praise and blame, uh, fame and disrepute, gain and loss, joy and sorrow. And the hook about them is, of course, we're always wanting the positive ones and we're really upset and resistant and angry when we get the negative ones, the difficult ones. But the way of the world is they alternate. You can see that just by looking at people that do become famous. You know, people kick and scream and do everything they can to become famous, and then it's, oh no, the paparazzi, I need to run away and hide. And this is just the other side of that coin. Or look at any president or someone who wants to become a politician. And there was that need to be seen, and then it's like you're under a magnifying glass, and every little or big thing you ever did is front-page news. These are always alternating for us. This, there is, if we're caught in the daily uh, household of values, this is where, how we'll live in these, this alternation of praise and blame and gain and loss, fame and disrepute. Ajahn Chah, that very wise Thai forest meditation master who died in the last century, which sounds like a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago, uh, he said, true success is not being obsessed with any of these and actually being somewhat indifferent to their movement to see that this will, is what will happen, but that the mind and our experience, our inner experience, doesn't need to be affected by them. That's living not by worldly aims and values. It's really important as we do these reflections, though, not to just exchange one set of values for another. And as we very clearly and with great uh, 
sense of aplomb, give up the worldly values, we can often take on and buy into another set of spiritual values that are just as confining or just as uh, ego-producing. Looking to, you know, my practice, my practice is like this, or my practice is good, or my practice is bad. Using, you know, the image we have of ourselves as a spiritual person with all of the accoutrements of shawls and malas and empowerments or whatever it might be that's the latest fad. Collecting things, you know, books and teachings and altar objects, and it becomes another way of acquiring things. And I think Carol even joked about this the other night, you know, or in the fantasies, I can't wait till I get enlightened. And, you know, everyone sees me as this enlightened being with this magical set of powers, and I'm floating above and beyond everything. Sort of not quite seeing the inherent paradox in that, the inherent uh, impossibility of being fixated on being enlightened when true enlightenment is a real letting go of all of that sense of self and impressing others. So we really have to to look carefully at what movements the mind makes and how we can convert what were worldly values but then just make them just as limiting or confining spiritual values. Many of us value being in control. That's a way we feel safe. We feel in charge. We feel uh, powerful by being in control. And on retreat, there's a huge amount of letting go of control, of letting go of what we do when. There's a schedule. The meals are at set times. Um, We don't get to choose what room we're in or whether we have a roommate or not or who that person might be. We don't get to choose the other 99 people that we're knocking around this place with. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we all, as happens on retreat, have places we bump up against each other and it doesn't go so smoothly. We can't control that. We have to let go. So there's a lot of surrendering. This is the, 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 the renunciate value that is thrust upon us on retreat. And the question is, can we embrace that or resist that again and again and again as we see all these different areas where it's difficult for us, where we're challenged, where we don't have control over our situation? We have to learn to take what's offered, the food that's put out, the time of our interview, uh, the schedule that's already been set, the instructions that are given. In this, we're just really having to be uh, on the receiving end. We're not in control of that. Now, there are some ways this can be a relief of just like, oh, great, you know, just point me in the right direction and I don't have to make decisions anymore. But for all of us, we'll go between that sense of relief and letting go and a real resistance to the structure here. It's a very structured day, and the bells reinforce that. You know, you get so conditioned every time a bell rings. You know, you know something's about to happen, sometimes good, sometimes not so good. 
But it, I, you know, I actually find on relief, it is a relief not to have to make those choices all the time. And you, you, even though here you may get into fantasies about wishing you could have certain foods, believe me, there is a luxury in being served two or three meals a day, and you only have to come to the end of the retreat and face your empty kitchen and realize no one is shopping for you or cooking for you. Or if for us as teachers, it's the same thing. I go home and sort of keep waiting for the bell to ring and someone to put a meal on the table. And you kind of realize, oh, no, I have to do it. I have to shop and think of what to cook. So there are many blessings in this giving up of control. And so it's always, always a mixture, always a mixture. So many of us find uh, our value or status through our possessions. And that's really a sense of how we've been successful in the world, by what we have and how new it is, how bright and shiny, how much of it there is. Again, very culturally conditioned for us. Most of us actually have a lot. It's amazing what we accumulate in a lifetime And if you have to move, if you've moved recently, you'll know what I mean about this. I read a book a while ago. It came out, probably some of you saw it, a coffee table kind of book called uh, The Material World. You see, it was just a series of photographs of families from different cultures standing outside their homes, and they had taken everything out of the home and put it on the lawn or the, the ground in front of the home. And it was just so instructive to turn the page and see, for some people, they lived so simply. I remember a family in Bhutan, very simple, mud-brick kind of house, a few pots and pans, some religious objects, a little bit of bedding and some boxes, and big smiles on their face. It's one, it's a, it's, if you know anything about Bhutan, it's a Buddhist country where they don't have a, what is it, GNP, They have a GHP, no, GNH, Gross National Happiness Product, instead of, that's how they determine whether the country is doing well or not. So there's that photo, and then a few pages later on, there's a a U.S. family. Can you imagine? You know, there was barely room in the wide-angle lens for all of the stuff they had from snowmobiles to, you know, three televisions and VCRs and all of that. And you just, you know, have to wonder who's actually happier or feeling more content in their lives. This was brought home to us. Um, It didn't get mentioned in the introductions. Many of you know this, but Guy and I are married and have been for about 22 years now something like that. And Kamala and Steve are also uh, a long, committed couple. So if you see any funny looks going between the twos, and the t- you'll understand it's, it's uh, very much part of the package of being in relationship. But anyway, we moved here from England. We met in England and spent about five years together there. And finally, Guy convinced me to move to California about 18 years ago or something. And we came here with two backpacks and five boxes. And that they were our sole worldly possessions because I had been traveling in Asia and then in Europe and Guy had been a monk and on the road for, for many years. Um, and so that was it. And we sublet places and we 
we did short-term rentals and then finally got a place of our own. Now we have a three-bedroom place and it's filled with, as Guy will often say, junk. You know, what is all this junk? Why do we need all this junk, all this stuff? And I keep saying, I get attached to it, you know. It's stuff my family gave me, you know how it is. We, we recently had our home uh, recarpeted because it was so stained and we'd had water leaks and everything, and we had to move everything out. And that's when you get to see how much stuff we have, how much is actually necessary. This is why it's so great to come on retreat. I mean, how much did you bring here? I, mean, I know some people do bring quite a lot, but basically it fits in a little, what is it, 10 by 6 room, and you're going to live with all your needs taken care of in that simple way for all of these weeks and months. It's great to have these reality checks. It's, 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 we can see, you know, what is it we actually need, and we make it so complicated, and it's actually so simple. It's like going backpacking. You know that sense where everything you have is on your back, your tent and your cooking stuff, or traveling, if you've done that, through Asia or Europe. And there's that sense of self-sufficiency and freedom, and yet we so easily encumber ourselves with more stuff, and it's so easy to bring it out into, you know, bring it into our homes and so hard to let it go. The Buddha, in in talking about this, said basically there are just four what he called requisites of food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. And if those four are met, that's really all we need. There's this beautiful little uh, piece from the Digha Nikaya that I like that speaks to this. And how is a monk content? Just as a bird, wherever it goes, flies with its wings as its only burden, so too is he content with a set of robes to provide for his body and alms food to provide for his hunger. Wherever he goes, he takes only his barest necessities along. This is how a monk is content. That sense of lightness and freedom that can come from living in this very simple way And it's not ascetic, it's not giving up everything and starving oneself or having nothing, but just reaffirming this value of simplicity that's so easy to lose track of in this culture because there is so much emphasis on having and getting and obtaining and more is always better. For many of us, we have an obsession around food. Now, of course, we need to eat. I love to eat. I love food. But what is our relationship to that on retreat can be really helpful to look at this and develop skillful relationships. If you've been around monastics at all, you know that they regularly do a chant before they eat. It's often in Pali, so if you don't know what it is they're saying, here's here's a translation of some of it into English. They say, I take this food not for fun, not for intoxication, not for putting on bulk, not for beautification, but simply for the survival and continuance of this body, for ending its afflictions, for the support of the holy life. 
thinking, thus will I destroy old feelings of hunger and not create new feelings from overeating. I will maintain myself, be blameless, and live in comfort. So this sense of just enough to be comfortable, to be supported, to be able to do your practice. When I read this, I can't help but think of all of the restaurant reviews that you read in the newspaper. You know, and this obsession around food and tastes and new experiences. And I read them because, as I said, I like food, but sometimes it's just so striking. It's like this this thing about new and, and uh, uh, cutting edge and money being spent and Really, about what? I remember reading a while ago about foams. Have you heard? I mean, I don't, still don't even know really what they are. It's a new thing in food where they make foams of essence of vegetables or something, and it's like carrot foam. How much time and energy someone put into creating that and serving it and thinking of it, and what? What? You know, the mind just boggles sometimes, especially in comparison to that statement of the Buddha. So we use food uh, as a support for our practice. And of course, to enjoy the food. The food is great here. It's not as though any restaurant critics are coming to critique it anytime soon, but it's good retreat food. Sometimes it's great food, so enjoy it when it's there. But the way to enjoy it is to be fully present for it. Most of the time I'm able to do that, just be with the tasting of the food and the chewing and the swallowing. Every now and then there's a meal that gets me because I tend to eat slowly on retreat and often go towards the end of the line. And so pizza day is a day that I often find my challenge. I, I take one slice of pizza And while I'm eating it, I'm watching to see that the pizza is just disappearing and I'm not going to get a second slice because everyone else is going to get there before me. And after a while, I realize I'm not enjoying the one I have because all I'm worrying about is, is there going to be any more? And so you just see the suffering created out of this wanting something that's not there and not being able to be present for what's here. So... Really simple things like what we eat can become a source of so much learning if we open to them. Not to make big judgments about, you know, take too much, take too little. You know, food can be a sensitive issue for some of us, but to really have this sense of what is a way of relating to it that will support me being here in a way that's feeling contented and taken care of, yet not overindulging. This is the attitude that's helpful. So in talking about things that we need to be aware of, that we might be bringing in from outside, that are values that are not so helpful here, it's also useful to consciously cultivate the values that do help us being on retreat. And again, each of us might have our own set of what that might be, Um, values and and reflections that help us actually enjoy being here, allow us to be more fully present. And a big one for me is contentment. It's an easy thing to say, and I know sometimes not so easy to access on retreat, but that sense of being okay with what is. 
Contentment really is being happy with what you have and not wanting what you don't have, not longing for what you don't have. Again, that sense of of just being okay with what's being offered. Renunciation, I've talked about that a little bit, is um, that it's, it's so much a part of what is thrust upon us here in coming to live in this very simple way. But how can we move into that as a value rather than something that we begrudgingly take on because there isn't anything else offered? Renunciation is not a practice of putting on the sackcloth and covering oneself with ashes or wearing hair shirts or whatever your association with renunciation is. It really can be quite a joyful practice of the practice of letting go, of really that open-handed, not needing whatever it is, control, a certain kind of food, coffee in the morning, and just finding a sense of contentment with what is. Surrender, as I said, just to the schedule, to this repetition of sitting and walking over and over again. If we resist that movement, we are going to suffer because that's all we have to offer here is another sitting and another walking interspersed with some meals and some sleep. That's it. And to really just let go of needing it to be different. Again, that looking for excitement can happen, but often not. It's just another sitting or another walking. So in that process, we cultivate patience. Patience just to fully be with our experience as it is, with that sense of being available for it, not needing to push it away, have it be different. Shanti Deva said so wisely, why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? So we cha- if you can change it, you change it, and if you can't, that you, you accept it. It's just that sense of patience. Another quality is generosity. I, a, a couple of yogis have already spoken to me about being really touched by some generous acts that they witnessed or were offered to them. And it's such a there's such a sense of being um, open here that very simple things can really touch us. Even something like someone opening the door for us or you know, making sure that we have what we need, offering something. And this isn't a call for everyone to go around giving everyone else stuff, but just that sense of generosity in your own experience in being here, in living in community, that sense of availability or openness to the experience of others. And that's supported by the quality of kindness. Kindness for yourself, almost primarily, and kindness for others. Acknowledging that we are living in community, that there is this way we're sharing everything that's here, and that we impact each other. It's really an expression of our metta to offer this sense of, as the Buddha said, looking at each other with kindly eyes. I love that phrase from the suttas, blending like milk and water, looking at each other with kindly eyes. So not separating 
from the others, but a sense of willingness to be part of this community and sharing. And then the last, there's many, you could, you know, again, come up with your own list of qualities that you know help you be here. For me, a big one on retreat is not complaining. There are many things one could complain about on retreat if you just wanted to look around. I'm an aversive personality. It's easy for me to find stuff. And I don't know how many notes I've written in my mind about this and that on retreat. And I don't think I've ever sent one. But, you know, what about this? And you should fix that. And And just this sense of things not being the way I think they should be, not being right. It can be such a huge relief to give that up. A little story. We went on a holiday a little while ago. It's actually a few years ago. And on the plane, we were actually going to Hawaii, which we love to go do every now and then, um, on a holiday. And on the way over, Guy said with great determination, I'm taking a vow not to complain. And after saying that's very nice, I said, but you are taking this vow on the plane on the way to Hawaii. It's not as though, you know, it's the most challenging of situations that you're making this vow. But it did come in handy. You remember it, don't you, Carol? It did come in handy. Any time he started, we'd both go, remember? Much more challenging to do it on retreat. But I had the call to remember this. I was practicing over at the Forest Refuge a while ago. And for some reason or other, my practice wasn't going that well. And I was just having bouts of hindrances come up. And I remembered Guy saying, you know, doing this, this vow to not complain. And actually at the time to help me, I took up four practices. But that was a big one. And every time I noticed I was started to go into, why don't they do it like that, you know? This isn't the way. What about the temperature? And don't they know? And I just say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to complain. Because the truth is, does your complaining get you anywhere in this situation? Talk about not being in control. But indulging in it just feeds that tendency of being dissatisfied, being discontent, feeling separate from. It's a great practice. I recommend it highly. So in this section, I just want to finish with a little um, saying again from the Anguttara, from the Gautami Sutta, about qualities that are helpful and not helpful. As for those qualities of which you may know, these qualities lead to dispassion, not to passion, to being unfettered, not to being fettered, to shedding, not to accumulating, to modesty, not to self-aggrandizement, to contentment, not to discontent, to seclusion, not to entanglement, to aroused persistence, not to laziness, to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome. You may definitely hold, this is the Dhamma, this is the Vinaya, this is the teacher's instruction. So I'm on, that was only number one. Um, I, number two is... Uh, <laughs> luckily, we've got lots of weeks to go through these. My very life is sustained through the gifts of others. I love this one. 
In, in some ways, actually, this is always true. You know, it seems like we have to take care of ourselves and get stuff and do stuff, but when you really step back and look, people give us a lot. You know, sure, sometimes there's an exchange, but someone gives us whatever we ask for or need or have to have clothing and shelter and food. But we do notice it here on retreat as we are like a bhikkhu with our robes and our bowl and people are always putting stuff in, paying the bills, keeping the heat on. I can remember, uh, again, this retreat over at the Forest Refuge as one gets kind of reflective uh, on a on a retreat and seeing a, a robin out in the lawn there, you know, trotting about getting its worms or whatever insects that it was eating. And just that sense, just like that sutta that I read earlier, how free a bird is, how self-sufficient. It takes care of every need it has, completely independent, food and shelter. It builds its own nest and finds its food and mates and takes care of its young. And I just had this reflection about how much I need, you know, what a big building and heat and clothes, and it just seemed so complicated. But to keep it simple, to on retreat feel into that sense of being um, self-sufficient. We're given all we need when we're here, and it's pretty simple, but really to see how complete it is, how complete the offering is through the service of others, through the gifts of others, through their cooking, they do your laundry, they shop for you, they maintain the place. Sure, as I said, we do our work meditation, and it's wonderful that we all participate in that, and that's a gift. It's a real gift that we give each other and uh, to help the maintenance of the, the retreat center. But everything else is given to us when we're here, and this place is here because of the generosity of others, the gifts of others. You know, this hall got renovated, the place got bought, the you know, new uh, renovations that have happened, all because people gave gifts, and now we're living in that bounty, in that generosity. What is happening here really echoes the traditional relationship there is between monks and lay people, or, or monastics and lay people, where the lay people so valued the practice and the wisdom and the teachings of the monastics that they offered that support. If you've been to Asia, you will have seen this very clearly, and the joy that the lay people had in making those offerings and putting the food into the alms bowl and going to the monastery and, and offering meal down it, just as we do here. It's a beautiful uh, system. And you can see, you know, I, I love reading that board and seeing who has donated the meal for the day and just getting that sense of being supported in our practice. So this, what is our experience here is really a very traditional one. We can sometimes feel that we don't deserve that, or we're not being productive. Again, this is a worldly value. Oh, perhaps it's selfish to come on retreat. I'm not out there changing the world. Really not to think that way. There's something very profound happening here in the work that you're doing, in the practice that you're doing, that I firmly believe has significant impact on the world and what's happening out there. So really to respect 
your practice here and be, as they say, worthy of gifts, as a repeated refrain again in the, the chants of the monks, that the monks are worthy of gifts. In the same way, we in our practice here are worthy of these gifts in our willingness to undertake this serious and challenging work of opening and practice in the Dhamma. Because you have to know that many people are inspired by the fact that you're practicing here. The three-month course has been going on for over 30 years now, every autumn. And I know, you know, though I'm here many years either practicing and now teaching, when I'm not here, I think of it often. And I think at the beginning, oh, they've just started, and in the middle, they're still going. And towards the end, they're really still going. But it's inspiring to me, and I know many people do this. Your being here and practicing in this way actually returns the gift in a way, is meaningful to other people. So to recognize this, to recognize how what we're doing here has a profound impact, obviously on our own lives in the moment and when we leave here, but it does radiate out. You are being held in the um, field of generosity of many people who've both practiced here in the past, who are working here now and have in the past, or who just know that you're here and you represent something for them. So this is important, what you're doing here. So for many of us, we like to end a sitting by dedicating the merit of our sitting just to say a few words at the end, to recognize this relationship, that in being here we're supported in so many ways and that what we can offer back is the merit of our practice. And so we dedicate it to the merit of all beings so that they may too taste freedom and know peace. It's a a nice way to honor that cycle. Because as we practice here, we do receive so many gifts As I said, there's the obvious ones of just being supported here um, with the food and the shelter and everything. But the gift of sangha, the the line says, "My, my very life is sustained through the gifts of others. We're also sustained through the gift of sangha, through just everyone being here. Imagine if you arrived at this retreat and you were the only person here. And there were five of us sitting up here, but there was just you. It'd feel pretty weird, wouldn't it? And we'd all, you know, interview with you one after the other, and, you know, check up on you every few hours because we don't have anything else to do. So we really appreciate that everyone else is here to kind of spread the load a little and fill the place up. So there's really that gift, that gift of friendship and generosity, the gift of the Dhamma. The most precious gift, as the Buddha said, we're receiving that. And then the gift that nature gives us. We've been so blessed this retreat so far to have the beautiful autumn colors and the weather that we've had, the green of the grass coming from California. This is a real gift. The chipmunks and the turkeys. To really feel how you're supported here through these gifts and to have some sense of appreciation Because what this kind of reflection does is encourage the beautiful quality of gratitude. At Spirit Rock, it's a little blasphemous, I suppose. We call that the fifth Brahma Vihara because it's such 
a wonderful spiritual quality and it supports us in our practice if we can feel gratitude. Instead of, you know, not enough or comparing, to have that sense of being blessed because we are blessed to be able to be here. And many of you have spoken about that, the gratitude you have for this opportunity to be here and practice in this way, even though it's difficult, and I know it's difficult to be on retreat, to really acknowledge that sense of how blessed we are and how many gifts we receive. I mentioned the retreat that I did at the Forest Refuge, and when I was having that bout of hindrances, I I took up four practices, and one of them was not complaining. One was metta, because I'd been doing another concentration practice, and I just, it was really helpful just to do some metta, and mainly for myself. But the other two practices I took, well, actually, the other practice I took up was a gratitude practice. And I did it in two ways. Um, in the, I made a list of all the things I was grateful for in my life. And at my first sitting every morning, I just looked through that list. And it only took a few days, and I'd had it memorized because the things were very clear to me. And I'd just say each one to myself and sit with it for a, a moment or two and let it resonate, the blessing of, of that thing that I was grateful for. And that was a wonderful way to start the day. And then at night, as I lay down in bed, I made the commitment to think of five things I was grateful for that day. And often it would just be the fact that I was laying down and my head was on the pillow, but that's okay. But to come up with five things that were immediate to today that I was grateful for. And doing the four practices that I did really shifted really shifted that sense of being caught in doubt and restlessness that an aversion that I'd been caught in, in the hindrances. So it's really helpful to um, awaken our heart a little. If we get a little tight or constricted or feel stuck in some way, to know there are skillful means and to, to step back a little. We get so focused sometimes on on being not okay, or things aren't going the way we think they should, or there's some difficulty in the body or the mind and emotions, if we can step back a little, we can find that can lift, and we can really um, see how we're all held in this circle of generosity. And for it to be a circle, we all need to participate, to actually give and receive, to recognize and that we're on the receiving end of a huge amount of generosity and kindness, and then to offer that back and to recognize the interconnectedness of all of us. This is how we're supported by the gifts of others. I thought I'd finish with a a little short story um, that many of you probably know. These things float around the Internet so much these days, but it's on gratitude and interconnectedness. It's from Ireland. His name was Fleming, and he was a poor Scottish farmer. One day, trying to make a living for his family, he heard a cry for help coming from a nearby bog. He dropped his tools and ran to the bog. There, mired to his waist in black muck, was a terrified boy, screaming and struggling to free himself. Farmer Fleming saved the lad from what could have been a slow and terrifying death. The next day, a fancy carriage pulled up to the Scotsman's sparse surroundings. An elegantly dressed nobleman stepped out and introduced himself as the father of the boy Farmer Fleming had saved. 
I want to repay you, said the nobleman. You saved my son's life. No, I can't accept payment for what I did, the Scottish farmer replied, waving off the offer. At that moment, the farmer's own son came to the door of the family hovel. Is that your son? the nobleman asked. Yes, the farmer replied proudly. I'll make you a deal, said the nobleman. Let me provide him with the level of education my own son will enjoy. If the lad is anything like his father, he'll no doubt grow to be a man we will both be proud of. And that he did. Farmer Fleming's son attended the very best schools and in time graduated from St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London and went on to become known throughout the world as the noted Sir Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin. Years afterwards, the same nobleman's son who was saved from the bog was stricken with pneumonia. What saved his life this time? Penicillin. The name of the nobleman? Lord Randolph Churchill. His son's name? Sir Winston Churchill. So we never know what will come from an act of generosity, whether we give it or receive it. We just live in the circle, keeping it moving. Let's just sit for a moment. This talk was given by Sally Clowett Insight Meditation Society on October 19, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.